0: evening. The next lecture in the Book Arts Press series is on Monday, the thirtieth of January, in which Roger Wick, who is Associate Curator of Bookbindings and Rare Books uh, excuse me, Associate Curator of Manuscripts and Rare Books at the Walters Gallery in Baltimore, will be speaking on the Creation of his great exhibition on books of ours that was at the Walters this summer. It is the tradition of Malkin Lectures to distribute at one Malkin Lecture the fruits of the one before, and I am happy to say that Marjorie Wins nineteen eighty seven. Malkin Lecture has arrived from the printer uh, and will be distributed to all those who remember to sign the guest book at the reception which follows this lecture in room 523. It's a trade in short. You sign the guest book then you get a copy of the Malkin Lecture. And copies uh, will as usual be distributed to those friends of the Book Arts Press who are not here tonight. It's also my pleasure to announce the 1989, repeat 1989, Malkin Lecturer will be uh, Mr. Lucian Goldschmidt, who is with us tonight. And to note the presence in our proceedings of Marjorie Wynne herself, the 1987 Malkin Lecturer, it only then remains as the Indians surround the campfire, to announce that the 1988 Malkin Lecture is also here (laughs) to uh, my great pleasure, giving a lecture this evening entitled, Put a Resolute Heart to a Steep Hill, William Gowans, Antiquary and Bookseller. It's a great pleasure to welcome you and him here tonight.
1: Good evening. Mary Ann O'Brien Malkin, Robert Wedgeworth, Terry Bellinger, friends of the Book Arts Press, prospective friends of said press, the history of books is just another history of us. The publication of a book is already a conspiracy of those who manufactured the materials and those who assembled them and those who financed the operation. Just like making a motion picture, there's a script you have to engineer in order to make it visible. The most advanced theorists have discovered that the script, the text, does not exist, It is as evanescent as a scent on the breeze when we are passing a flower garden, a vineyard, a chocolate factory, or a pig farm. After the book is published, we receive it by display and sale, by purchase and gift. Sometimes we will possess it in five minutes of conversation with someone who has been talking with someone who has skimmed the contents. Rarely will we read it, but some copies will be read. The book, you see, has no life of its own, independent of people. Perhaps it will slumber on the shelves of a library or bookshop, but those shelves belong to someone, someone who pays the rent, who chooses our book over another and over something else. Meantime, the book, read or unread, swings in and out of recollection, in and out of print, and an increasing number of copies will depend for their survival on the patronage of dealers in second-hand, out-of-print, and antiquarian books. Treasure trove or sinkhole, safety valve or safety net, the antique book trade deserves our attention here in a country that maintains its republic of letters on democratic principles by mandating equal access of both expression and reading. The formation of a canon of approved, admired, and classic work may be inevitable in any republic of letters, but democratic principles require constant comparisons and periodic reform. The mechanics of that require the close study of texts, the survival and availability of a diversity of literature, and the possibility of private ownership of books. Alongside research libraries, public libraries, private libraries, and bookstores, the antique trade extends the range of available books not only to libraries but to private customers, whether they be students, scholars, teachers, collectors, or others. We will find the antique book trade flourishing in democracies and stifled elsewhere. Wherever we find it, we should do what we can to encourage it. Sometimes in the life and career of a bookseller of days gone by, William Gowans, Our Case in Point, we can find exemplary features that could inspire our contemporaries. This is a motivation for antiquarian book trade history that would have found favor, I think, with Saul M. Malkin at any stage of his career, but most particularly when, as editor of Antiquarian Bookman, he published the want lists and gathered and spread the news of, by, and for the antique booksellers. Put a resolute heart to a steep hill, William Gowans, antiquary and bookseller. I read to you now in the words of William Gowans, age 29, as he wrote to his father James at Cincinnati from New York City on June 21, 1832. I promised you some time ago to give you some account of my life and adventures since I left Fredonia. I think in the fall of 1825 I left Fredonia, December 14, early in the morning. On my arrival in Corridon, I called upon Mr. Thim, teacher, and that afternoon he showed me the various things worth seeing in the then metropolis of Indiana. I remained with him all night and next day proceeded on my way for Sarasville, Kentucky, on my way there, I called upon Mr. Fatten Baker, where I took up my lodgings. Next day, I then began to think what to turn to, but six weeks expired before I could resolve what to do. I was advised by some of my acquaintances to commence a small grocery, but I could not bring my mind to that. I, by this time, was resolved to try a speculation in flour. Mr. Pettit, the druggist, recommended a Mr. Salmon to me to purchase the flour from, I am sorry to say was not a man of the integrity of Mr. Pettit, for I trusted altogether to his judgment with respect to the quality of the flour. After having brought it to the market at New Orleans, out of my lot 17 barrels were sour. This, together with the fall of the markets, made a very considerable in the original amount of my capital. From this time I gave up the idea of being a flour merchant." After having disposed of my cargo, I fell in with the Thomas Alexander that I formerly had been acquainted with. We immediately resolved ascending the Mississippi as far as Natchez. Next day took shipping in the gunboat Lafayette, and in two days arrived in Natchez. We stopped here about a week, then purchased a small boat. We loaded her with such articles as would be suitable for planters on the coast. After having our boat fairly loaded, we left Natchez and performed a coasting expedition which lasted for two months. We arrived at New Orleans about the middle of April, sold off the remainder of our cargo and boat. After having counted our cash, it consisted of $20 more than when we land or our stock at Natchez, so that you can perceive by this that this was an unsuccessful voyage. We then resolved on paying a visit to New York, the metropolis of the Western world. We took shipping on board the brig Pharos, on the 21 April, bound for New York, and on the following morning bid a final adieu to New Orleans, that common grave of all Europeans. We had a passage of three weeks. After having found myself placed in the city of New York and reflecting on the past, the present, and the future, I acknowledge I found myself at a stand. Although I could never, as far as I recollect, blame myself with cowardice, Yet there seemed to be new feelings rushed into my mind, unknown to me before, my money nearly all exhausted, fair from home, not more than twenty years old, without any mechanical, and unwilling to labor, and no hopes nor prospects before me, but to become a daily drudged to some surly master for a scanty subsistence through life, unbeloved and soon forgotten, when dead and gone to the land of forgetfulness." I knew that, like the prodigal's son, I might have returned to my father's house, but I confess I had not the penitential feeling of the prodigal, for I was resolved never to return to my father's house in rags as he had done. This may be considered a degree of foolish pride, and I acknowledge it with confusion, but I was reduced to this dilemma, to return home or force myself to become someone or other's slave." After landing in New York, four of us rented a small garret room, then removed our trunks from on board the ship. I took one day's rest. Next day, I commenced the search for hard labor. In a short, I heard of a gardener that wanted a laboring man. He told me that he had just hired a man the day before, so I returned to New York again. Just as I was entering the suburbs of the city, I saw a second gardener at work. I called upon them. The boss immediately signified his willingness to hire me. He offered me $10 per month and board. I soon accepted his offer, and so next day I commenced hard labor. My contract was for two months. I worked harder than ever I did in my life under a scroaching sun in the months of June and July. We commenced working at 5 o'clock in the morning and woke till 9 at night. Such hours was certainly very unreasonable. By the expiration of two months, I found myself master of $20. Again, I found myself out of employment and would gladly have remained so, if my purse would only have admitted of it. About the first of August, I engaged with a stone cutter to polish stone at the low wages of 75 cents per day, although a dollar was the usual price. Although he pretended I was less worth a 75 cent than one that had been learned, but was not the case, for I found in two or three days I could perform as much work as any man in the yard. Although I must acknowledge that he allowed me this liberty, that if I could find a a day's work at higher wages, I was at liberty to go. And as his yard was close on the docks where the sloops landed their cargoes, I had often an opportunity of day work at very high wages. I worked by the hour. We had from 12 to 18 cent a hour, but in return had to work as hard as we could. But then there was a high stimulant. Sometimes I engaged by the day at the rate of 125 and sometimes by the price. I think the highest wages that ever I made in this way was $2 a day, but such chances was but rare. In this way, I continued till Christmas, then business became dead through the severity of the weather. After counting my gains for the past season, I found I had $75.85, but I lived in a very parsimonious way. I, and another man equally riched, rented a cellar at the amount of $1 per week, and in this damp and unwholesome cellar we lived— We lived upon dry and cold provisions. Spring came, and I still remained unemployed for want of inclination to be employed. An Englishman and I, being alike destitute, we seemed to take a mutual interest in each other's welfare and afflictions. When he was sick, I looked after him, and when I was sick, he paid me the same attentions. By this time, it was May 1826. I remained unemployed exactly till July 4 following. The said Englishman had procured me a situation in a newspaper office to fold and carry out the newspapers. In this employ I remained till the month of October, remained idle till January 1827. The said Englishman again found me a situation in the theater. I made a living at this low business till the May following, when the said Englishman got me a situation in a bookstore at six dollars per week. I remained here for two months and was seized with that dreadful malady, the smallpox. Here my expectations were all blasted, for I never had been as comfortable since I left home as I was at this time when taken sick. I was for two weeks in agonizing distress, and frequently during that time I was deprived of my reason. I still wonder that I did not kill myself. I was placed in the garret of a three-story house and an open door in the one end of the house, And as no one sat up with me through the night, and often when a delirious state of mind, I got up and walked up and down the garret, and might have walked out at the door and fallen three stories into the street. One night I was stopped coming downstairs in this condition. You might suppose the might have shut me in, but the weather was so hot that it might have killed me in about two weeks. I got the turn and began gradually to recover. And I think I was confined to bed altogether for about five weeks, but was unable to do any business for four months. My face after recovery was very much marked. At this time, however, very few and discernible. This cut me out of employment in the bookstore, as during the time of my sickness, I had to find another man in my place, so that during the following winter, I had little to do. During the winter, as I had little to do, I was in the habit of attending book auctions. I saw many books sold much below their value, as I thought. I, having a few dollars still left, laid them out in the purchase of books and went round and sold them among my acquaintances and others and often sold them again at a much higher price. At auction, I have often bought a book for 40 cents and sold it for 100. This way, I supported myself for three months till the opening of the spring. I found my stock of books increasing so that I thought of trying to procure a stand. I employed a carpenter to make me a case for holding books fixed up against the outside of a house and made rain tight. This article resembled what you call a pris in Scotland. After having this made, I procured the privilege of placing it outside of a store in a public street. For this privilege, I paid my landlord $1 per week. So to work I went and got my case filled with old books. I may say it was only half filled, for I had to borrow the money to pay the carpenter, which was $26. After I had all my arrangements made, I opened shop, for you can see by this time I was become merchant. For truly, may I say, at this moment was the die of my fortune cast. For had I been unsuccessful at this time, it might have driven me to despair and made me have resources to actions that might have completed my ruin, as I had by this time become to think that everything was conspiring against me and determined to keep me back." Solomon says, Hope deferred maketh the heart sad, but I can safely say, Hope has been a kind friend to me, and has borne me up under many difficulties, troubles, and trials. As another great man says, There is a tide in the affairs of every man's life, which if taken in the full, leads on to fortune. Whether I have sailed with this tide or not, time will determine. Under all the following disadvantages did I begin business in this great emporium of the new world borated money to pay the carpenter for his work, had but few and of little value what books I had, engaged to pay the man $52 a year for the privilege of standing in the street, and had no one to assist me in any shape without money, without stock, and without friends, and an entire stranger in a foreign land and but only 24 years old. I say again, I look upon this to have been an important epoch in my life, for in the event of succeeding or not succeeding, my misery or happiness depend. For had I not succeeded, I had some idea of going to Greece to join the wars of that unhappy country, for I was beginning to grow careless of life. Disappointments had so thickened around me, I thought life unworthy of keeping and thought of throwing it away on some glorious cause. I thought Greece the most worthy of the sacrifice. Such ideas was whirling my brain at this time. My birthday, I think my mother has told me, was on the 29th of March, So accordingly, on or near that day, 1828, did I open shop in New York. The first few books that I sold gave me a sensation of joy not in my power to describe. I recollect perfectly that I felt a glow of gratitude towards everyone that favored me with their custom. For six weeks, I little more than paid my board and rent, and so felt nearly discouraged. But about this time, I tried another experiment. I removed my stand into a more public street, indeed one of the most public in New York. Here my business began to revive immediately, and I now found myself fully encouraged to go on. Just at this moment, and this is in 1832 as he is writing, a small boy came into my store selling brooms, and as my mind was full of my past situation, I could thoroughly feel for him. So I now purchase of a broom of him, although I had no use for it, for I knew that if a sale of any of his articles gave him as much pleasure as it gave me, it must have been to him invaluable. I told him to put a resolute heart to a steep hill, and he might some day or other become as great as Franklin or Washington or other great man that has lived in the tide of times. I continued through the remainder of the year to be as successful as I could have expected, my neat profits at the end of the year on the twenty-ninth of March amounted to $735.70. I am certain my stock when I commenced was not worth $50, but now it had become a great deal more valuable, and I had by this time some prospects of succeeding. Next year my profits amounted to $1,050, and so kept gradually increasing. About the middle of this year the house was taken down that I stood against. I then rented a small store in an obscure part of the city, but I soon found that I had made a change a great deal for the worse. I remained here only till the house was rebuilt that I formerly stood against. What may astonish you, and it did a great many besides, I now rented the store that I had formerly stood outside of, for by this time I had accumulated a large stock of book and, as I thought, justified in renting a store as well as other booksellers. On the 1st of September, I took possession of a three-story brick house in one of the publicest streets in New York with a store under at the yearly rent of $600. I felt that I had attained to a degree of imminence in my business far beyond my most sanguine expectations, only two years before standing in the street before the same store not worth $50. On the 1st of September, I put my stock of books into the store, for by this I had acquired a stock nearly sufficient for filling a common retail bookstore. My success in the store the first year was at least equal to my expectations, although not proportionable grat as when I was out of doors. My neat profits this year was $1,953. My rent was 600 My boy cost me $75 a year. My board cost me $3 a week. Our board is first rate. At least I would not be- wish better for my part if I was worth millions. I suppose that I am worth, at present nearly $5,000, books and cash together. This is the amount of my savings since the commencement of bookselling. Farewell, your affectionate son, William Gowans. Thirty years later, syntax much refined, Gowans reminisced about his boyhood in Scotland, recalling incidents when books began to influence his life, a development suspended by emigration and his rough life on the American frontier. Some of the books I had to study at school I remember with something like Veneration, among them especially Gray's Arithmetic and Barry's Collections. Aesop's Fables was the first book that I could call my own, a present from a cousin, Walter Gowans. I used to read this ancient classic in our vernacular with intense interest and firmly believed that all the animals introduced into the fables could actually hold conversations like human beings. An odd volume of Addison's Spectator next came in my way, and this was perused with great avidity. The reading of the allegory of the vision of Mirza threw me into raptures, and I still take great pleasure in reading this wonderful vision. There was close by the school an old woman who kept a little humble variety store. Among her stock were colored picture books. Peggy Carmichael, for this was her name, generally kept her window pretty well covered with these flaming colored wares. I used to spend much time every day standing and gazing with covetous greed at these rude specimens of art, and ardently wished I could make myself owner of one or more of them. After some exertion, I managed to secure a few pence, no doubt they came from kind-hearted mother, and so made a purchase of one of these gems. This made me happy for some time, but the delight soon cloyed and I became indifferent to my new possession. I have found through life the same ardor has prompted me to acquire, while a corresponding indifference has invariably followed possession in all things. I may say that this was my introduction to the love of books, which has kept steadily burning on through life, and I hope will while the sands of life doth run. William Gowans was born on March 29, 1803 to James and Marion Patterson Gowans on a farm in Lesmahago, Lanark County, Scotland, some 20 miles southeast of Glasgow and less than 20 miles east of Kilmarnock, close by the banks of the River Clyde. After attendance at the parish school in Greenhall, he emigrated at the age of 18 with his parents and six brothers and sister, sailing from Liverpool to Philadelphia on the 1st of June 1821 and traveling west by wagon via Pittsburgh. The family settled in Fredonia, Crawford County, on the Indiana bank of the Ohio River, 40 miles below New Albany and Louisville, Kentucky. Three years later, aged 21, he embarked on those adventures you have heard related in his own words. From the establishment of his shop at 121 Chatham Street, he attracted the patronage of the book-buying world, beginning with Judge Gabriel Furman of Brooklyn, a liberal buyer who made him his auction agent, Except for a few seasons in the late 1830s as a book auctioneer, carrying on at the premises established by the pioneer New York book auctioneers John Pearson and Royal Gurley, and two years thereafter touring Scotland, Gowans built up his stock and custom in the five shops he occupied in succession from 1842 until his death in 1870. The list of his customers and the visitors to his shop is an honor roll of the literati, antiquaries, and book collectors of his time. John James Audubon, George Bancroft, SLM Barlow, Dr. George W. Bethune, George Brindley, John Carter Brown, William Cullen Bryant, George William Curtis, the Guykink brothers, S.G. Goodrich, Washington Irving, James Lennox, Henry W. Longfellow, Benson J. Lossing, Henry C. Murphy, Henry T. Tuckerman, and Richard Grant White. Even Lord Macaulay applied through the British minister to Gowans when he wanted a first edition of the Book of Mormon. As his fame spread, so did descriptions of his last shop, the one at 115 Nassau Street, become romanticized, and anecdotes about him become embroidered. Here is a description of his stock and premises by Dr. William C. Prime, a very satisfied customer. The stock was probably the largest of the kind in the world. We do not know of any such accumulation elsewhere, although we have examined many of the great collections in the hands of booksellers. There were many more valuable collections, but none so large, and probably none so wholly without arrangement. The stock was contained in a Nassau Street building on the first floor, the basement, and a sub-cellar. The floors were nearly 200 feet in, in depth from front to rear. Originally, the sides were shelved to the ceiling, and two rows of tables ran down the length of the first floor. But as the stock increased, it was piled first on tables, then on the floors, until the mass of books was everywhere impenetrable, except by narrow alleys running here and there, and at length the piles began to topple over and fall into the alleys, so that the careless investigator was likely to tread on books at every step. The basement was a wonder. There was no gas, and the trusted customer who was permitted to search in its gloomy recesses was furnished with a kerosene lamp having no chimney and casting a dim, flaring light on vast piles lying in confusion everywhere, and which in several parts of the long room were not less than ten or fifteen feet in thickness. Of course, thousands of books were buried out of sight in these masses, and the owner himself knew little of what he possessed in his great catacombs. After comparing Gowan's stock unfavorably with those of Colbachini, of Venice and Weigel of Leipzig, Dr. Prime concludes... Now the dealers of Europe are generally careful in their purchases so that their stock contains but little that is trash. Our old friend in New York had grown up from selling in the street stall, where secondhand school books and all kinds of cheap literature had their value, and he never lost the habits of trade in which he began life. So he had an immense amount of print on hand which damaged instead of adding to the saleable value of the white paper. For every book which was worth keeping, there were five or ten that should have been sold to the paper dealers. But for all that, there were treasures in that Nassau Street cellar which were worth hunting after, though it was work to hunt for them. It was like excavating in old ruins. One could never tell what would turn up, and now and then it was startling to see the jewels that came out of the heap. For a much richer account, you should read Fred B. Perkins's description of Gowan's second-hand book, Catacomb, in his Scroop, or the Lost Library, a novel of New York and Hartford, 1874, wherein young Adrian Chester makes his first visit to the shop, guided beneath to the basement by the bookseller Andrew Purvis. Would they ever find us if the light should go out? (laughs) Dear me, no, was the consoling reply, not unless it was by mere accident. Nobody would come to look for us. I could live here ten years, I believe, For all anybody's looking after me, there's a dozen dried book hunters lying dead in the corners (laughs) down here, for what I know. There was a grave-like chill in the air and a faint flavor of dry, cold dust, very dreary. This is the catacomb, the potter's field, the boneyard of literature, observed Mr. Purvis. There is nothing beyond except Stockwell's old paper shop and then the paper mill. The auction may stand for a slaughterhouse, observed Adrian. Then comes the graveyard and after that the resurrection into clean, new, white paper. But wait a moment, please. There is something I want. Of anecdotes, the best was recounted by an anonymous memorialist in 1885. Gowans was peculiar at times, though bookmen knew how to take him. I was once a witness of his eccentricity. He had secured, after a long search, a rare book for a customer who desired it very much. When the purchaser came into his store one day, Gowans said, "'I've got your book.' The man was both surprised and pleased as he examined the book and asked the cost. Five dollars was the price. And the man facetiously asked, "Uh, "'Isn't that too much?' Let me have the book, replied Gowans. You will find it higher before you get it, and he deliberately tossed it into the stove. The gentleman exclaimed in dismay, I would have given fifty dollars for it. In the stream of obituaries and in the stream of obituaries and memoirs that followed Gowans' death, there was much praise for his tenacious and wide-ranging memory and for his ability to find books for customers. I think William Gowans did more than any other man to foster and encourage antiquarian research in books in this country, said Dr. William S. Purple. There are a few references to the Western memorabilia, the source Gowans cited for some of the blurbs in his catalogs, and to Gowans's early publications, but his importance as a publisher of books as author and publisher of book catalogs, and as a bibliographer, both published and unpublished, went unnoticed. So, as a publisher of books. From 1833 to 1869, Gowans published 27 books in hard cover, reprinting a few of them several times, and two pamphlets. Five he obtained probably at trade sales in the form of printing plates made for others, Colton's Lacon, Charles Wells, Coleridge's Biographia Literaria, and Wilson's The Genius of Robert Burns, Wiley and Putnam, Cupper's The Universal Stair Builder, H.C. Baird, and Comte's The Positive Philosophy, Calvin Blanchard. The rest he selected and assembled for publication himself. Like the books he obtained in the form of precast printing plates, many of the titles that Gowans published have the air of books sought for by customers in the antiquarian book trade. Among them are three Masonic books, Allen's Ritual of Freemasonry, Yakin and Boaz, and Carlyle's A Manual of the First Degrees of Freemasonry. Gowans's Bibliotheca Americana, 1845-69, was a pioneer effort to make available in carefully edited reprints the texts of five rare editions. R. A. Locke's Exposure of the Moon Hoax* responded to an interest by old book buyers, just as King's California was designated a book for everyone going to or having an interest in that golden region. Only in the publication of Theological Argument and Controversy did Gowans appear to make personal and independent choices, as evidenced by the single books by G. S. Faber and Bishop Whateley and four books by Isaac Taylor. Nearly all the books, from the fade on of 1833 until the fifth number of Gowans' Biblioteca Americana in 1869, carried advertisements of Gowans' publications and some for antiquarian books as well. Copies of the antiquarian catalogs would be bound in, or if stereotyped, the plates would be ganged and machined with those for the book. Some of the books provided the themes for catalogs on special subjects, such as proverbs for La Rochefoucauld's Moral Reflections, Scottish poets for Ramsay's The Gentle Shepherd, or evidence of revealed religion for G.S. Faber's The Difficulties of Infidelity. Bound up in Gowans' editions, these catalogs included both priced and unpriced entries to show which books were in or out of stock. As author and publisher of catalogs and bibliographies, from 1842 until 1870, excepting three years, Gowans published at least one numbered catalog each year, 29 in all if you count the one numbered 24 and a half. Most of the catalogs offer rare old English and American books, but two are devoted to new books, uh, which are virtually remainders. Um, Numbers 21, 2, and 3, miscellaneous books offered as unpriced numbered items, doubled as auction sale catalogs with new title pages at Bangs, Merwin, and Company when Gowans moved his shop from Center Street to Nassau. Altogether, Gowans cataloged some 21,000 books in the series of catalogs sent gratis to any part of the United States, many of them stating that a liberal discount will be made to booksellers and purchasers for libraries. In double columns, Inside a Rule Frame on a 9-by-6-inch page, books were listed alphabetically by author in subject sections, American books, theology, biography, trials, Freemason literature, bibliography, etc. Author and title were followed by number of volumes, format, binding, other than boards, price, place, and date. Nearly all the books were in English, most of them American or British imprints of the 19th century, with a scattering of 18th-century ones. The distinguishing feature of the catalogues is their annotations, sprinkled throughout from first to last. Catalogue one includes quotations from Cotton Mather on art, Henry Hallam on Hugh Broden, John Adams on Bata, and Chesterfield on Bolingbroke, as well as snippets from the English critical reviews. To these quotations are added, beginning with Catalogue 9 in 1850, those personal remarks and recollections cited as Western memorabilia that set him apart from his contemporaries. Book catalogs are to men of letters what the compass and the lighthouse are to the mariner. On the natural history of New York, 1842-52. This work may vie with Napoleon's great work on Egypt, for magnificence and far transcends it for utility. (laughs) On a catalog of the library of Yale College in New Haven, 1743, this is in all probability the first book catalog published in North America. Actually, that's not true. That catalog was published by another school. It is certainly a very sorry attempt at catalog making. It has all the characteristics of primitive rudeness, coarse paper, rude type, and defective compilation. It is, however, a typographical as well as literary curiosity. It is to catalog making now what the Indian canoe is to the majestic ocean steamer. (laughs) Of Scientific American, 15 volumes folio, $100, 1845 to 59, by consulting them, the humble and dormant capabilities of some future Galileo, Watt, or Fulton may be fired with ambition to plume his wing for useful eminence and never-dying renown. No public library in the United States ought to be out without a department exclusively appropriated to American books. American arts, science, and literature may be said to be in their infancy, but from all appearances in no great length of time, they will assume an importance and perhaps a preponderating influence in the career of human progress. In 1860, if the price of old books anent America, whether native or foreign, should continue to augment in value in the same ratio as they have done for the last 30 years, their prices must become fabulous, or rather, like the books of the Sibyls, rise above all valuation. To him, J.J. J. Audubon admitted of his Birds of America, the following subscribers received their copies but never paid for them George IV, the Duchess of Clarence, the Marquis of Londonderry, the Princess of Hesse-Homburg. Rothschild paid for his copy, but with great reluctance. He sold 75 copies in America, 26 in New York, 24 in Boston. Of Fitzgreen Halleck's library, sold at auction, the collection had the appearance of a heap of indifferent books bought indiscriminately by some lounger about an auction room who had picked up a book now and then because it was cheap without the least design of forming anything like a library touching one or more subjects. Notwithstanding all this, I apprehend Mr. Halleck was by no means singular among his fellow craft, the poets, as having made an indifferent collection of books. MacDonald Clark had no books at all, and frequently declared he would have none, for, said he, the poring over other men's productions would emasculate my native genius and so destroy my originality. He was known as the mad poet of Broadway, you know. Woodworth, the little stout man with dark, squint eyes, and poet of the moss-covered bucket notoriety, had a very poor collection of books, which could hardly be called a library. Poe, the most original of all the American poets, had a library made up of newspapers, magazines bound and unbound, with what books had been presented to him from time to time by authors and publishers. He had no very high opinion of the modern generators of books, especially those so employed around him, and hence many of these gifts found an early transfer into the possession of some second-hand dealer at wonderfully reduced prices. Of Poe in person, for eight months or more, one house contained us, us one table fed. During that time I saw much of him and had an opportunity of conversing with him often, and I must say I never saw him the least affected with liquor, nor even descend to any known vice, while he was one of the most courteous, gentlemanly, and intelligent companions I have met. He had a wife of matchless beauty and loveliness, her eye could match that of any hoary, and her face defy the genius of a canova to imitate." a temper and disposition of surpassing sweetness. Besides, she seemed as much devoted to him and his every interest as a young mother is to her firstborn. And on Benjamin Franklin's Imprints. A certain class of book gatherers have sprung up within the last 20 years who have been overtaken with a mania for collecting books printed by Benjamin Franklin or books bearing his imprint. But how or why this epidemic should ever take root or spread among any class of book collectors would appear to be incomprehensible. The volumes published by Franklin possessed no literary reputation. As a general thing, they were either unmeaning devotional pieces, local law treatises, or what was worth, religious disputes. Besides, the typography was contemptible, and the paper the coarsest and of the most objectionable kind. Had they possessed any one of the features of Aldous, Fools, or Pickering's publications, such as elegant typography, accuracy of text, or beauty of paper, there might have been some propriety as well as good taste in thus collecting, but to collect them simply because they were printed by a certain printer without any other attraction appears to be a degree of man-worship which the general taste of this age would entirely repudiate. There appears to be no book that Franklin ever printed worth a place in any gentleman's library, if we accept Cicero's Cato Major, and there are far superior editions of that Roman classic to his. If Franklin had no other pedestal to build his reputation on than that of typographical notoriety, he never would have been heard of out of the street or perhaps the block where he manufactured his dingy volumes. Of Gowans's Western numerabilia and other annotations, there are enough to make up a small volume, a possible byproduct of this lecture. Anyone want to publish? With books on Freemasonry and Kindred Subjects, 1848, Gowans began a series of unnumbered subject lists for binding up with his editions, Proverbs, Evidence of Revealed Religion, Immortality of the Soul, and Scottish Poets. Additional supplements to his editions were lists of books by the author, Isaac Taylor, Alan Ramsay, C.C. Colton, Bishop Richard, Richard Whateley, and George Stanley Faber. As an unpublished bibliographer. News of Gowans's bibliographical aspirations trickled out over the years as notices, references, and items in his publications and catalogs. Manuscripts and notes for many projects figured in the auction sale of the stock of his longtime assistant and amanuensis, Edward W. Nash, Gowans, it turns out, had never learned to spell, so it was Nash who inscribed Gowans's correspondence and copied out his bibliographical notes. This aspect of Gowans's career was lost on his contemporaries, and no one has ever tried to collect the data and trace the surviving manuscripts. The results of a brief survey are impressive. Lost or out of sight are manuscripts for bibliographies on pastoral care, probably a subject list intended to accompany an edition of Burnett, American Poets in Seven Volumes, Travels in the United States and Canada in English, Tobacco, Dancing, American Editions of Bunyan, and American Female Authors. Located in various libraries are the manuscripts for A Bibliographical Bibliography of American Literature, American Editions of Robert Burns, Jefferson's Notes of Virginia and the Federalist, American Editions of Knickerbocker's History of New York and Blackstone's Commentaries, Daniel Webster's Speeches, Daniel Webster's writings, Junius's letters, American editions of Shakespeare and books relating to him, English editions of Shakespeare, American dramatic literature, Washington orations, and Washingtoniana. Dates in the manuscripts show that several were begun in the 1840s. Most were kept up to date until Gowans' death in 1870, and some were transcribed in their final form by Nash as late as 1887. The most ambitious, the bibliographical bibliography, is first mentioned in 1859 and 60 at the end of some Western memorabilia. For a full list of his writings, see Gowan's American Biographical Bibliography. The manuscript, six volumes quarto, is listed without price in Catalog 19 in 1860 as being a catalog of all the books written by American authors, or those who have resided in America, with their size, number of pages, if illustrated with engravings or maps, when and where printed, with a short biographical sketch of each author. Twelve years later, the executors printed a notice in the final auction sale of Gowans' stock, offering the 16-volume manuscript to a person or institution who or which would promise to publish it. Finally, the manuscripts, divided as two lots, figured in the auction after Nash's death. A fair copy of author lists A to E, along with other manuscripts from the sale, found its way to the library of the Grolier Club. Eleven of the 16 volumes of working notes came to Harvard with the bequest of E.J. Wendell in 1918. There is no evidence that Gowans or Nash ever made the promised biographical notices. Gowans kept his notes in partly used ledger books of merchants, hotel registers, and the like. The first and third of the surviving volumes, dated 1854 and 1853, are titled A Catalogue of American Authors and Their Works, collected by William Gowans, New York. Gowans' model, published between 1851 and 1854, could have been James Darling's Cyclopedia Bibliographica, a library manual of theological and general literature, analytical, bibliographical, and biographical. Has anyone here ever used or encountered that book? One, Darling's biographer in the DNB in 1888 called this long-forgotten compilation next to Watt and Lowndes, the most important bibliographical work ever produced in England. With five of the 16 volumes of notes missing since 1900 or before, we cannot make a proper accounting of the project. Letters A to E in finished form comprise hundred authors we can laud Gowans for his ambition, his accuracy, his collection of titles, but not for failing to get into print. Why didn't he publish? Gowans and Nash gathered the author lists for the first five letters of the alphabet in final form no earlier than 1868. Two years before that, Joseph Sabin, whose expertise Gowans praised in his catalogues and whose works he included in the bibliography, had published the prospectus for his Dictionary of Books Relating to America, a work which would subsume nearly all of Gowans' authors and their books. Who could have foreseen then that it would take seventy years to complete? By the end of 1868, Sabin had published the first ten parts of his dictionary and outbid Gowans for the Eliot Indian Bible in the Menzies sale. If any person or project vanquished Gowans's plans... It would be Sabin and his dictionary. To Gowans, a book was part of a set of an author's works or a text on a subject. You have heard his disparagement of imprint collectors, so it will not surprise you to learn that he omitted the printer from his bibliographical entries, just as he did in his catalogs. Those who, like Gerald MacDonald and William S. Reese, suggest that his bibliography was used by the editors of Sabin must admit that his entries would fit only in those solid paragraphs at the end of an author's work where minor titles are strung along with shortened imprints. To date the title of a book, dating the merchandise, is to gauge the contents to your needs. Up-to-date? Out-of-date? Amusingly antique? Just right. For one purpose, historical research, you want your Roman guidebook to be dated 1650. For another, your next vacation, 1988 or 9. To add the place of printing to the title of a book, localizing the merchandise may have been a useful discriminant to some book hunters at the start of Gowans' career, but it was rendered obsolete by the incessant competing editions and reprints of the 19th century. In the great world of books which Gowans did not enter but which Sabin did, to name the printer of the title of a book personifying the merchandise was to designate quality, cachet, or warning label. Everyone in that world knew well the distinction between Aldus and Griffius, the Etiens and Josbad, Veckel and Froben, Plantin and Elsevier, as well as the distinctions of their work, quaint or sublime, scholarly or cheap, ugly or beautiful, carely, careless or accurate. In the 19th century, discerning scholars, some of them collectors or dealers, capitalized on the personality of editions by constructing collections and bibliographies of printers for the historical record, and from such evidence, the bibliographies of places, preparing the way for the close critical studies that would follow. Now, Maestro, if you will dim the lights, we'll have a brief Picture show. Here is Gowans, age 63, photographed in 1866 by Ellis Dexter. Uh, to any Scot, Gowans means Daisy, but this is probably not the origin of the family name. There is the cover of his first priced catalog in 1842. Gowans often printed a map on the cover of his catalog to show you how to reach him. Here he is, two up on the right in the Caxton building on uh, Center Street in 1858. And here is his carrier's pigeon device on a catalog in 1857. and half a dozen catalogs to show the brightly colored paper uh, that he had applied for uh, shelf backs to his catalogs. I don't seem to be getting anything out of this. Uh, Here is the fourth and final edition of the Catalog of Masonic Books, a hardcover book dedicated to Hermann Ernst Ludovic, whom you will recall as the subject of the first Malkin lecture. And I still don't get anything. Uh, Here is his device converted into a binding stamp. And typical Gowen's twelve MOS, uh, Terry Bellinger has found another for his collection which is over on the corner that you can see later uh, gilt upper cover blind stamped lower cover and to show some of his customers here is Brunson Alcott's copy of Gowen's second uh, publication the 1835 Phoenix uh, with his notes uh, you can find him calibrating Zoroastrian to transcendental numbers in the margin there Here's a very heavily annotated copy of the first publication, the Fidon of of 1833, with uh, pages and pages of notes by Elizabeth Peabody, and a large paper copy of the Coleridge owned by Justin Windsor with his manuscript index of notabilia. And among customers, finally a customer at the shop here is Herman Melville's copy of A Selected Burton, Anatomy of 1801, with a lengthy inscription up front. I bought this book more than four years ago at Gowan's store in New York. Today, Allen, in looking at it, first detected the above pencil signature of my father's. Perhaps you can barely make out A. Melville, 1816, of above, who, as it now appears, must have had this book with many others sold at auction at least 25 years ago. Strange. Pittsfield, July 7, 1851. Here is the manuscript title page of the first volume of his Catalog of American Authors. And here is the first page of the first author, Susanna Haswell Rousen. And here is a page uh, for John Howard Payne, a customer and visitor at the shop. The finished manuscripts don't look much different with a flush right imprint. Uh, Uh, running uh, through the entries and just so you will remember him there is uh, Gowans once again Uh, lights up if you please on Wednesday November 23, 1870 in the full enjoyment of health and after classifying a number of volumes and pamphlets at his shop Gowans suffered a stroke on the way home never regaining consciousness he died on Sunday the 27th Rev. Dr. John Thompson presided at the funeral in the Fourth Presbyterian Church on Wednesday the 30th. Sabin and Pine and Dulady and the rest closed their shops. He was buried at Woodlawn beside his wife, who had died four years earlier. Dr. William S. Purple read before the New York Biographical Society from Gowans' unpublished reminiscences a stream of anecdotal obituaries issued from the New York Press and the bibliographical journals The stock was estimated at 135,000 bound volumes when Gowans had moved to Nassau Street seven years before, but now Gowans and Nash both were quoted with a figure of 250,000. No one had tried to estimate the number of the pamphlets, but they must have contributed substantively to the eight tons of stock that the executors sold for waste paper at four and a quarter cents a pound. Remember Dr. Purple's ratio, Dr., Um, um, Uh, primes a ratio of uh, 5 or 10 to 1. A 16-part sale, the largest collection of books ever offered for sale at auction on this continent, went on for over a year. The catalogs to 2,476 pages, the lots to 60,520. Expenses ran to $15,000, the gross to $33,000. As Sabin wrote, the immense stock of the late Mr. William Gowans did not include any book of special value. Dunn and Company reported on him in their private ledgers of credit reference, pays all his debts rich, mean, and penurious. (laughs) They also liked his R.E., his real estate. At the funeral, Reverend Thompson said, He was not so much a dealer in books as a dealer with books. To know them, their authors, age, spirits, range, and bearing was not his labor or life task. It was his delight and high enjoyment. There was one signal incident of transference in Gowans's career. As a lad, Wilberforce Eames visited Gowans's shop, and that experience convinced him to devote his life to books. He went on from bookselling to bibliography, succeeding Sabin as editor of the dictionary, and in the great world of books, he was the first American to receive the gold medal of the Bibliographical Society London. In this country, it is William Gowans who provides the stereotype of the overgrown antiquarian book stock, sure to contain nuggets in its vastness of indifferent books and waste paper. He had the reputation for picking up lots at auction that no one would bid on, and of cleaning out the remnants of trade sales. If we look beyond the stereotype, we will find a model there of a bookseller who integrates the publication of new books with the republication and sale of old ones. Finally, at a time when few of the bibliographical aids that we reach for today existed, Brunet being the obvious exception, Gowens did what he could to compile and publish subject and author lists. I hope you like that, Saul. But the final word begins not belongs not to bibliography and Sabin, but to Robert Burns, whose verses Gowans memorized back home in Scotland before he learned to read. Quoted by Gowans in his memoirs and in jest by the dealer Andrew Purvis in the novel Scroop, we twa he run about the braes and pood the Gowans fine but we've wandered money a weary fit sin old lang sign thank you
0: If you only buy enough books, you eventually buy one that will interest even Roger Stoddard. I have recently returned from a book-buying trip which included Hay-On-Why in England, or rather in Wales, where there are not one but two shops that have more than 250,000 books. Every bit is cold, as the sub-basement in Nassau Street, I'm sure valuable things buried just beneath pavement level. That's how somebody described Herculaneum, (laughs) and us as well. I hope you will join the speaker, Marianne Malkin, and the company in room 523, where there is champagne on one side and uh, innocuous bubbles on the other.